Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, folks, Bubba Watson and I never never had a had a golf lesson. I don't know how he ended up winning the Masters. Uh, I can't even dribble the ball off the first tee. That was really amazing, wasn't it? It's uh, kind of like with Tim Tebow. You know, you you want Jesus to win the Super Bowl. You know, and Jesus won the Masters. Uh, he's got a real clear Christian testimony, doesn't he? Uh, all right, we are in. Acts chapter 22, at the end of it, uh, verse 30, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. And uh, you know this past season celebrating Easter, I don't know what text you you looked at uh, in your church last Sunday uh, on Easter Sunday morning, but uh, if you look at most of the text, you'll see something similar going on after they see who Jesus is and uh, behold him as resurrected they immediately go out and tell other people. And uh, that's the reason that uh, the season of Eastertide, which we're in now until Pentecost Sunday uh, in early June, late May, uh, is a season of mission. Because whenever people behold the resurrected Jesus, they go out and announce it. Uh, And you see that with the women who go to tell the men. You see it with Peter and John who go back to tell the other disciples. And uh, one of my favorite stories is with the uh, two men on the road to Emmaus who had heard that Jesus had been resurrected, but they they just doubted it. And so they're on the way back home to Emmaus, about seven miles north of Jerusalem, and they're just kind of stumbling along. And Jesus himself comes up and starts talking to them, and they don't recognize him. I mean, get this. <laughs> they're doubting the resurrection. There's the very resurrected Jesus right with them. They talk with him all the way home and still don't recognize him even though Jesus is teaching them the Bible all along the way. And it's getting dark outside, and of course there are no street lights, no pavements on the road, so you've got all these potholes and rocks and you know, no street lights, so you don't walk at night. And they invite him in, and Jesus agrees to come in. And then when they're breaking bread, he gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them. Ah, they recognized him as the Lord. And then he disappears from them. Well, immediately... In the dark, <laughs> they go running seven miles back to Jerusalem to the upper room where the other disciples were. They couldn't help themselves. It's too, the news is too exciting. And uh, you see it here with the Apostle Paul. He sees Jesus Christ resurrected and exalted on the road to Damascus. And ever since then, he's just been out uh, proclaiming the good news. Now, the problem is, of course, uh, when you do that, you're going to get into trouble. And if you've been representing Jesus Christ faithfully, in the various circles where you serve, if you've been talking about Jesus Christ from time to time, you're going to find you're going to get into a lot of trouble. It's going to cause some chaos. It's going to cause some division. It's going to cause some hostility from time to time. Sometimes people will tell you of their hostility. They'll usually do that if they sense they're in a very large majority. If they sense they're in a minority, they'll just think it and carry it out later. But you do tend to provoke uh, some hostility Uh, when you're talking about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Well, this is what happens to the Apostle Paul. You know, he's been on his three missionary journeys. He's now coming to Jerusalem with a gift to give to the Jerusalem Christians from the Gentile Christians. And all the way home to Jerusalem, he's being told by the Holy Spirit, speaking through prophets, that he's facing great danger and trouble in Jerusalem. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens as we saw last week. He seeks in every way to adapt himself to suspicious Jewish folks, especially the Jewish Christians. And so he pays the offering for three men who have made Nazarite vows and are going to the temple to pay their vows. Paul pays for them. Paul himself goes to the temple to worship. And there, false accusations are made against him. He is then uh, almost torn to pieces by the crowd and rescued by the Roman soldiers who take him into custody, bind him, take him into custody, and they couldn't find out from the crowd what Paul did because they were so chaotic, so many lies were being told about him, nobody could possibly sort out the truth. So then they put him on the rack, and they're going to whip him and torture him and get it out of him that way when Paul reminds them, hey, do you do this often to Roman citizens? Oh, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. And uh, so he's excused from that. Now they've got their third technique to try to find out exactly what was going on. They're going to take him to the Jerusalem Council, the Sanhedrin. So 
What we've seen is the beginning of Paul's apologetics. The first apologetic was to the crowd. You remember for a moment, he got them to be quiet. He spoke to them in their own language until he got to the part about going to the Gentiles. And then they all just went crazy again. And that was his first defense or apology of the faith. Now we're going to see the second defense. It's brief, uh, very brief, as he goes before the Sanhedrin. But there's much for us to learn there in our defense of the faith. As we go out, having, having beheld by faith the resurrected Jesus Christ, we're now proclaiming him everywhere. We run into opposition and hostility. We, too, need to learn how to defend the faith. So let's turn to chapter 22, verse 30, picking up the story here. And look at this second defense of the Apostle Paul, 2230. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay, this is a very interesting occasion here. Paul is obviously displaying his great cleverness, uh, his uh, ability to deal with all kinds of circumstances, but I think we learned something important about our own uh, communication of the faith. Let's notice, first of all, in verses 2230 through 235, that our defense of the gospel demands a holy life. Our defense of the gospel demands a holy life. We are not just simply conveying intellectual content. We're conveying a work of God. What we have to proclaim is a great work of God. And the great work of God is that he sent his own son, the second person of the Trinity, to be incarnate in the womb of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to lay down that life on Calvary's cross for the removal of our sin to be raised from the dead on the third day to validate his great sacrifice and to go into heaven to prepare a place for us. This is the greatest work of God ever. We proclaim a work of God. We must be a work of God because the work of God also is not just what was done for us but what was done in us. And those who are proclaiming it are those who have experienced the benefits of of the great work of God. We're the ones who have experienced the benefit of the forgiveness of sins and an imputed righteousness, a righteousness given to us in toto, not by anything we've done, simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. And we are the recipients of the great work of the Holy Spirit. 
So we must display the great work of God about which we speak. So we're part of the whole act of God. So if we do not display accurately the great work of God, it discredits the message of the great work of God that we're communicating. So there's just no doubt about it. The defense of the gospel demands a holy life so that there's a consistency between what is being said and the behavior of the person saying it. And it's very difficult to go to one of your friends or acquaintances or family members and be able to anticipate every question they're going to ask about the gospel, every challenge they're going to give to you personally. It's impossible to anticipate all that. But if Christ is in you, he's beginning to shape your intuitions so that he gives you wisdom in the moment to respond in a way that is consistent with the gospel message. And you have to trust him for that. But you must invite him into your life and ask him to change your life so that you're constantly changing. We'll see this has happened in the case of the Apostle Paul. Now, looking at verses 2230 and chapter 23, verse 1, we're going to see this, that in living a holy life, we must have clean consciences. We must have clean consciences. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, uh, and really literally it says, men, brothers, as just uh, recorded here, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, this is a word that's used a number of times in the Scriptures, especially by the Apostle Paul. There are several places where Paul puts great emphasis on his conscience. We'll find that before Herod Agrippa II, in chapter 26, he speaks again of his conscience. When he's writing letters to the Corinthians, he speaks of his conscience. When he writes to Timothy, he speaks of his good conscience. Paul, over and over again, speaks about the necessity of a good conscience. So first of all, our consciences are important. Our consciences are important. It's important for us to maintain good, clean consciences. Uh, The reason is that if we do not maintain clean consciences, we ourselves are condemning ourselves. In fact, in in Romans chapter 2, I've listed the verse here for you, uh, where Paul talks about the Gentiles who have never heard uh, the law of God, who have never heard the Scriptures. He says they're convicted by their own consciences. Because even if you've never heard of God or never heard of Christ or never heard of the Bible, you are created with a conscience. Everybody's got one. So anywhere you go in the world, any age, there's always a conscience in that human being. And Paul's point in Romans 2 is that we're all condemned apart from Christ because even if the law doesn't condemn us, our consciences condemn us because we've all got them and we've all fallen short of our consciences. So you say, well, I've fallen short of my conscience. How can I have a clean conscience? Glad you asked. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says over and over again, the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences. Aha. So in the work of Jesus Christ, he not only forgives our sins, not only gets us moving in a new direction, he actually cleanses our consciences so they're free and clean and what you would call good consciences, and you have to maintain good consciences. Now, how do you do that? Well, first, let's, let's move to our next point. We'll see how to do it. Our consciences are not only important, but they're imperfect. And you have to realize they're imperfect, even while you maintain them. Now, what do I mean by imperfect? Well, a couple of things. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you remember that Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, eating meat offered to idols. And he says, you all are asking me if if an animal has been offered as a sacrifice to a false god, and then that meat is taken to the marketplace, which it always was, and just sold in the meat markets, can you buy that meat and eat it if it was offered to an idol? Because the way that you would worship the idols is you would offer the sacrifice, and then you'd sit down and eat some of the meat that you offered as a festival, an idolatrous festival to that false god. And Paul says, you're asking me, can you eat that meat? 
Paul basically says, those of you who feel free to do so, go right ahead. As long as it's sold in the meat market and you take it to your house and eat it, you're not worshiping the idol to whom it was offered previously by somebody else. So in other words, there's no moral, spiritual, ritual contamination on that meat just because before you bought it, it was offered as a sacrifice. So if your conscience is clear, go ahead. And that was largely the Gentile mentality, no problem. But the Jewish mentality was we had never touched such meat. And he said, if that's your conscience then don't eat it. And furthermore, you Gentiles, if you're eating with Jews, don't try to manipulate them into eating the meat you're offering them because they have a weak conscience. So he calls the Jewish... This is very ironic for a Jewish Christian to be saying this because the Jews were known to have you know, strong consciences. But he says, the Jewish ones are the ones with a weak conscience. Their conscience is so sensitive they can't eat meat offered to idols previously. The Gentiles have a strong conscience. But he says, you with a strong conscience, be careful not to tempt the weaker conscience to violate their conscience. And those of you with a weak conscience, don't condemn those who have a stronger conscience because they're eating meat and they feel free to do so. Of course, the parallel in our day would be drinking. If you're a teetotaler, fine. If you're a teetotaler for pragmatic reasons, fine. If you're a teetotaler for principled reasons, let me tell you something, you've got a weak conscience. If you think that you really morally can't drink because it's unprincipled, you've got a weak conscience. If you feel free to drink, you have a strong conscience. So the same advice. Those of you with a strong conscience, don't tempt the one with a weak conscience to violate his own conscience. Because he's supposed to maintain a clean conscience. So if you believe that something is wrong, there's your answer. Don't do it because you'd be violating your own conscience. Now at the same time, what we might say to you is, you need to be thinking about your conscience and whether you can mature your conscience. Because you see, your conscience is not perfect. But you just have to deal with what you got. If you happen to have a weak conscience, you just have to live with it. And you have to abide by it until the conscience gets set free by the law of God. You want your conscience bound by the word of God. That's what Luther said when he was testifying before the Diet of Worms. He says, you know, I'm bound by my conscience. You could say, well, Luther was wrong. Well, Luther had a conscience. He was bound by it. And so therefore you must always stick with your conscience, be willing to live or die by it. Paul was, always had a clean conscience but recognizing that our conscience always needs to be developed and matured. So while at the same time we're seeking to develop a biblical conscience so that our conscience becomes consistent with the real law of God and the Word of God, and that's what Luther is saying, my conscience is bound by the Word of God. So we want our consciences increasingly to be bound by the Word of God explicitly and everything the Word of God implies. Now, as that word implies, that's where we have to grow. What does the word of God imply? What should my conscience be bound by? Whatever it is, you need to abide by it. That has tremendous power in your life. You know as well as I do, when you're suffering from a guilty conscience, it's disabling. All the air goes out of your balloon. Your enthusiasm for communicating the kingdom is diminished. Your confidence in standing before someone and leading them in the way of the gospel is diminished when your conscience is compromised. Or what you end up doing is denying certain things about your life. You start image managing, pretending, and then therefore now your life is going to be bifurcated. And of course, it's not long before everybody can see that you're a phony and you've completely... Uh, diminished your ability to communicate the gospel because we've seen our defense of the gospel demands a holy life. So you've got to live consistently with your conscience. Now, what do you do when you violate your conscience? Hey, thank God for repentance. Thank God for confession. Thank God for forgiveness. So your conscience has to be regularly cleansed through confession and the experience of forgiveness. And that's the reason that in some of our churches... Every Sunday morning we're confessing our sins. Every Sunday morning. 
Well, it ought to be every morning of the week. It ought to be every hour of the day. It ought to be consciously living in confession. And that's how your conscience is cleansed and you keep a good conscience. So a good conscience is not maintained by perfect perfect performance. A good conscience is maintained by a commitment to having your conscience bound to the Word of God and secondly, having your repentance committed to confessing your sins and experience forgiveness for them. That's how you maintain a clean conscience. That's what the Apostle Paul did. And without it, he could never have stood before the Sanhedrin. He could never have stood before Felix and Festus and Herod Agrippa II. He never could have stood before the world and proclaimed the gospel. Neither can you. So here it is. It's important. It's imperfect. Therefore, we maintain it. We seek to mature it. And we seek forgiveness for every time we violate it so that it then becomes restored again. That's the issue of conscience, and it's a very, very important part of your moral and spiritual life. And you want to keep that conscience as fine-tuned as you can. And you can't do it if you're playing games with it. You'll end up destroying it. It's a finely-tuned machine, and you, you have to maintain it just like you do your car. You've got to change the oil. You've got to take care of that engine. You've got to keep it tuned. Same way with the conscience for it to be really working for you. And then what you find is if you're maintaining your conscience and taking responsibility for your sin by confessing it to your brothers, confessing it to the Lord, experiencing forgiveness, getting back on a track, then you find that the Lord wonderfully gives you wisdom. The wisdom and discernment that we need to help other people comes out of your clean conscience. And and here's how it works. You have been laboring for years to keep your own conscience clean. And you have a way of living life to do that. And therefore, when someone else comes to you and asks for advice, you can just simply say, this is what I do. And the very thing that you do to maintain a good conscience is the very thing this person needs to maintain their holy life. And then it becomes all intuitive to you and you become a wise person. You just cannot be a wise person unless you're giving due attention to the maintenance of a, of a good conscience. Uh, and this is not rocket science. It doesn't, you don't have to have a, uh, you, you know, an MBA from Harvard like Don Jordan uh, to do this. You can just be a klutz like me. And it's, it's not an intellectual issue so much as it is a moral one. Uh, and that is being sensitive to the Lord's presence in your life. And the youngest of us and the oldest of us alike uh, can do that by the grace of God. That's the reason that oftentimes the greatest wisdom comes from children. Okay, uh, this is what the apostle does. He has a clean conscience, and he declares that before the Sanhedrin. Isn't it interesting that he starts there? Isn't it interesting he starts there? He says, brothers, before I make any explanation to you, first thing I want to tell you is I've got a good conscience before the Lord. That's an amazing statement. It's an interesting way to start. I've got a good conscience before the Lord. Now, here's what you're saying to somebody. Look, I could be wrong. My conscience could be whacked out. But here's what you got to know. I am living consistently with what I honestly, at the deepest part of me, believe is the right and good thing to do. So what you shouldn't accuse me of is dissimulation or deception. And when Paul talks about his conscience, for example, with the the Thessalonians, He's saying, I've got a good conscience. I I didn't use any deception with you. I didn't try to manipulate you. So I may be wrong, but I'm not dishonest and deceptive. And that's really what Paul's trying to say. And that goes a long way with people. If they discern from you, you're not trying to trick them or deceive them. You're not living in two worlds, living two lives. This is what you honestly have come to believe with a good conscience. It's a wonderful way to start. Instead of claiming, I know the truth and it's absolutely unbreakable and all the rest of you are idiots, uh, I've got a clean conscience. Now, secondly, we must know the Word of God. Now, uh, there are some other things I want to say about this particular text, but you will notice in it that Paul immediately responds with something coming from the Word of God. Now, look why. In verse 2 the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him 
to strike him on the mouth. Now, why did Ananias do that? Well, Paul says he has a good conscience. And Ananias just refuses to, to accept that. Now, the only ones who can believe in Jesus as resurrected Messiah have to know that they're being deceptive. So what Ananias shows is that he believed that Paul was a wicked man. That Paul was intentionally causing problems in Jerusalem by intentionally preaching something he knew to be false. It was galling to Ananias that Paul said, I have a clean conscience. That was not an innocent, well, it was an innocent, but it was not a uh, non-provocative statement that the Apostle Paul made. And Ananias had him struck. Here's another reason Ananias did it. He himself was the wicked man. And Paul points this out. Paul, there were no charges. There was no indictment. There was certainly no conviction. Paul stood before the Sanhedrin as an innocent man, civilly speaking and religiously speaking. Until you have an indictment and an argument and a judgment, a man should be considered innocent. And Ananias was already executing him before there was any indictment or any judgment. It was completely wrong. Now, Paul has a response to that. He knows the Bible. And he knows exactly where in the Bible to go. In fact, uh, he makes reference to, uh, to Exodus twenty two twenty eight, And he says in verse 3, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yes, Paul says in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Uh, I'm sorry, it's Leviticus 19.15. Paul refers to. And in Leviticus 19.15, there's to be a fair trial. And we studied that in Deuteronomy as well. Paul knows the word. And he knows what is right and he knows what is wrong. He's not dealing with the Romans now. Now he's dealing with religious leaders who claim to believe the Old Testament. And he simply holds them accountable to their own standards, their own constitution. And he makes a statement that's consistent with Revelation 19.15, I mean Leviticus 19.15. And you and I should know the Word of God too. And so when we're dealing with each other, dealing with church matters, dealing with family matters, we know what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, because we know the Bible. Now Paul struck out... Uh, here in a very strong way. There are many scholars, evangelical scholars, who would say Paul here actually kind of lost his temper. He lost it. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Uh, it seems to be out of character for the Apostle Paul, and it seems to be out of character to these scholars with the character of Jesus. Because when Jesus was struck uh, before Pilate, you remember that he uttered not a word to defend himself. So it seems here to a lot of good scholars that Paul overreacted. Let's look at the other side. It's also possible that Paul meant exactly what he said. Uh, this Sanhedrin had been gathered quickly uh, by the Roman authorities, so uh, Paul probably didn't know exactly who said, hit him, but he knew it came from the Sanhedrin, and he got hit in an unjust manner. And he used to serve that Sanhedrin by going out and executing people who believed in Jesus. So he knew these people well, at least years ago. It had been 15, 20 years, but he knew them. And so he strikes out and says, you whitewashed wall, you hypocrite. You say you believe the Bible. And here you violate it first time you're threatened by it. And he, he says... How, well, how do you have the right to commit this violence? Well, the reason they did, now we find out, is that Ananias directed it. The high priest said it. Why did he do this? Well, what Paul said was galling, but also Ananias was notorious in his wickedness. Josephus, first century historian, speaks of this Ananias, who was high priest for 10 years, and said he stole the tithes that were supposed to go to the priests and took those tithes by violence. 
and he committed bribery with Roman authorities and Jewish authorities. He was a very bad actor. He was a violent man. And his term ended shortly after this. As a matter of fact, giving the end of the story, Ananias ends up dying in the Jewish revolution against the Romans in 66 AD. And when the Jewish nationalists are rising up against the Romans, of course the Romans eventually destroyed Jerusalem, but when the Jewish nationalists were rising up, they burned Ananias' house and found him in an aqueduct and took his life. So he was no friend to the Jewish loyalists. But Ananias was a wicked man. And what he did was completely wrong. And Paul called his hand on it. Now we've seen already that we're not into uh, uh, sadomasochism and that defending our civil rights is important as long as we're not being selfish. It's important for other people. And if we allow ourselves to be destroyed by injustice, we're simply inviting other, other Christians to be destroyed by injustice. There's a delicate balance here between self-centered self-assertion on the one hand and defending justice on the other. But Paul certainly has a place here, knowing the Word of God, to stand up and defend his right not to be struck by the Sanhedrin. But now notice C in verses 4 through 5. We not only must know the Word of God, but we must respect God-ordained authorities. And I want you to notice how quickly Paul's language turns when he discovers who had him struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers. I didn't know there was a high priest. And look at Paul's Bible knowledge. It comes out again. And this time he cites Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, And this time he cites the Bible against himself. So Paul's Bible knowledge is not for manipulative purposes to get his way. And I know some men who are heads of families who use the Bible... They know the Bible well, but they use the Bible to tell their wives how they need to submit to them and tell their children how they need to obey and do everything their dad says. Uh, and I know people who will use the Bible to manipulate relationships. They know the Bible and they use it selectively and they actually misinterpret it in order to get their way. Paul was not one of those. Paul knew the Bible and when it affected your behavior and you need to repent of something, he'll mention the Bible to you. When he has done something wrong, which he did in this case, even if it was unintentional and it was uh, uh, unintentional and ignorant, he was ignorant of it. He uses the Bible to convict himself, and he quotes the Bible in front of the angry Sanhedrin. You've got a point. Here's what the Bible says. Now there's a man with a clean conscience, and there's a wise man. He's applying the Word of God equally to everybody, including himself. Because he's living in the presence of God and he knows God knows every heart. And he will not pretend and image manage and try to manipulate. No, he's going to come under the rule of the word of God, everybody included. Now, notice how he handles this. If you want to maintain a clean conscience, you've got to be a quick confessor. Notice that Paul completely turns and changes his own attitude, his words, and his stance. I did not know that it was a high priest. No one should revile the high priest. And as David says over and over again, when people wanted him to destroy Saul, because Saul was a wicked king, and David was the emerging leader who was clearly to be the future king, and people want him to destroy Saul. And he says over and over again in in First uh, and Second Samuel, you shall not lay hands on the Lord's anointed. Now, if Saul had been saying that, that would have been manipulative to try to keep people from opposing him. But David says it. The one who has uh, certain benefits if Saul's destroyed. David's the one who clearly guards the Lord's anointed. So it's a God-ordained authority. And notice how Paul immediately submits to that, even though it was violent behavior. Now, If Paul had known that it was a high priest, he would have spoken respectfully, just like he did to Lysias. So are you going to torture a Roman citizen? It's a question. It's not, you can't torture me, I'm a Roman citizen. No, it's an appeal. So when you're dealing with authority, you don't stand up and act as though they account to you. You appeal to them. You ask them. 
you appeal to them for their sense of judgment and conscience according to the law of the land or the law of God. It's a very different stance. And I think those who are in the uh, uh, Christian uh, church, who are in the political realm, who maybe don't like what's going on in their city or their state or their nation, when they're complaining about something and about someone who made a policy or passed a law or something like that, we just need to be very careful that our language is respectful. That doesn't mean that we agree with everybody and it doesn't mean in a democratic society that we shouldn't express our disagreement. What it means is it should always be expressed respectfully. And if you're looking, for example, Fox News and CSNBC will not help you one bit. And if that's where you develop your rhetorical habits, you're in trouble. You are out of bounds because they're not respectful. Christians, when they come and they're interviewed, should be very different because we have strong opinions. They're theologically founded. They're philosophically coherent. But they're also respectful. Even when we disagree, especially when we disagree. And I think those, when you disagree with someone, that's when you really have an opportunity to show your Christian respect for God-ordained authority. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. Now, some scholars have wondered, why is it Paul didn't know who the high, that it was the high priest who said that he'd be struck? Some say it was because Paul obviously had bad eyesight and there are certain evidences of that in Galatians in particular or other letters where Paul seems to be, uh, since Damascus when he was blinded, he never quite recovered his 20-20 vision and that he just couldn't see as well. Some say it was because the Sanhedrin was assembled quickly and the high priest didn't have time to put on his colorful robes so that he knew who he was. Ananias had only been high priest for 10 years. He was only high priest for a few more months. But Paul hadn't probably been in Jerusalem or been to the Sanhedrin in 10 years, so he didn't know the man. There are all kinds of reasons why he may not have recognized him, but he didn't recognize him. He didn't know who said it. But then he apologized and made it right. So the first thing is our defense of the gospel demands a holy life. And a holy life doesn't mean we never make mistakes, but it means when we make our mistakes and commit our sins, we're quick to confess them no matter what it costs us. That's a holy life. That's what Paul did. And that's the reason his apology is consistently effective. Now, secondly, when we turn to verses 6 through 11, we see that our defense of the gospel demands great discernment. Great discernment in three ways. First of all, we must discern the openness of our hearers. We're told here that Paul perceived something. (laughs) Some of these were Sadducees and some of these were Pharisees. Sadducees were the religious liberals. They had discounted the miraculous and the supernatural. They didn't believe anything supernatural. They only believed the Pentateuch. They didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament. Only the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the Spirit. They didn't believe in a resurrection to come. They didn't believe that God spoke miraculously. They were complete religious secularists, like the liberal Protestant church, basically. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, were the fundamentalists. And if you were to put the evangelicals somewhere, I guess you'd you'd say they probably would have largely come out of the Pharisee camp. Paul did. Paul actually said, I'm a Pharisee. He said, I am a Pharisee. Interesting. Of course, some of that's missiological uh, identification with your audience. But Paul was trained by Gamaliel, and he had pharisaical training. That's the reason he was very strong on those points where the gospel disagrees with fundamentalism. He was very strong about those points, about where the gospel is not moralistic. It's gracious, and the Pharisees were moralistic. And he knew it very well because he was one. But Paul perceived there was a division in the house, He perceived something else. This was going nowhere. He perceived that Ananias was a violent, unfair man who was not trying to search for the truth. He was in an environment where telling the truth was not going to move anything forward at all in that meeting. He was wise to discern that. It's true. They weren't going anywhere. They were looking for excuses, just like they did with Jesus. When Jesus was interviewed by the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, they were looking for excuses in order to present an indictment to Pilate. They were not looking for the truth. And Paul discerns that just like Jesus' visit there, he was having the same sort of visit. So he perceived that. 
And sometimes, gentlemen, you need to perceive it. And Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 7. Don't throw your pearls before swine. And if someone is just abusing the gospel and abusing the name of Christ, the best thing is pray. Shut up and pray. There's no sense throwing pearls before swine. And that is swine have no interest in jewelry. And all they do is trample on jewelry. They don't even know better. So why would you have the name of Christ trampled with people who are so hardened in their sin they don't know better? And all they need to do is trample it like they do mud. So wisdom demands that. Many times Paul's mouth would be shut. This is one of those moments. And sometimes in our apology, our defense of the faith, we just simply wisely extricate ourselves from such a meeting. I've had, I had an instance uh, this past month. Someone uh, in the region was emailing me with questions. I could tell from the way he put the questions. He wasn't interested in the answer. He's just being argumentative. So I, did, I never gave him an answer. I, oh, I gave him an answer. But it wasn't the answer to his question. It was to advise him to look to the Lord and to read the Bible in this section. But I never engaged his doctrinal question because it was just simply uh, provocative. So you have, you'll have moments like that too. You don't give a direct answer. So here's what Paul does. Um, I'm a Pharisee. Okay, so now half the group is for him and half the group is against him. This is intentional. And he said, <clears throat> and by the way, the reason I'm here is because we Pharisees believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. As soon as he said that, whoa, 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 the whole crowd, they're up in arms against themselves and they're fighting. And the Pharisees actually go so far as to say, we find nothing wrong with this man. (laughs) Has a Pharisee ever said that about the Apostle Paul? Pharisees hated Paul. But now, of course, their doctrine, uh, their their Judaistic doctrine, Pharisaical doctrine is up for grabs. And so they, they, uh, they say that Paul's innocent. That was intentional on Paul's part. Let's just get out of here and let's let them deal with themselves. They don't have any agreement among themselves. They're certainly not going to agree with me. So he, B, not only discerns the openness of his hearers, but he speaks the truth relevantly, and it was relevant. And uh, you can look in your study Bible on pages 1799 and 1800 and see more about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Paul is able to speak the truth that accomplished the purpose he wanted to accomplish, which was simply to extricate himself. And let them have an experience to see that they themselves didn't know what the truth was. Now, this leaves Paul in a very discouraging spot. He's before the Supreme Court of, of his hometown religion, Judaism, and he's completely discredited. In fact, uh, they started to tear him apart, and once again, Lysias had to rescue him, just like he did from the mob. The Sadducee becomes a mob, and Lysias has to rescue him, take him back into custody. Imagine how Paul felt. What a mess. I come to Jerusalem to connect with the Jerusalem Christians, the Jewish Christians. I come to Jerusalem to worship and to offer an offering and on this Pentecostal feast, and look what is happening. Just total disaster. And then when Paul thinks total disaster is hit, he's never going to make it to Rome in his mind. Because, you know, he had told the Romans in Romans chapter 15, he wrote them earlier uh, from Corinthians, he said, you know, I can't wait to see you. I'll be coming to Rome. Paul had in mind he's going to go to Rome. But now he's saying, he must be saying to himself, I'm never going to get out of here alive. There's no way the Romans can get me out of Jerusalem alive. I'll be, and of course we find later there was a plot. When he was transferred to Caesarea, the Jews plotted to kill him. Paul knew they would. They were murderers. They were violent. So as far as he was concerned, it looked as though his ministry was over. And then notice what happens. Uh, the dissension arose, but the following night, verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And all you have to do is go to Acts 28, last two verses of the Bible, there Paul is under house arrest, maybe not the way you'd want to get to Rome, but he, he goes you know, bound in chains on a ship, shipwrecks, eventually gets to Rome under house arrest, not an ideal vacation. But he's in Rome, and for two years he's freely proclaiming the kingdom of God, just as he told the Romans he would do 
Maybe not in the venue he said he would do it. But he gets to Rome. Now, the point is here that Jesus comes to him and reassures him and comforts him. And this is a very special moment. Uh, Paul had words from God on a couple of occasions aside from this. But here this word, take courage, is actually one word. And the only one in the New Testament that you find using this word is Jesus himself. And he uses it four times in the Gospels. Uh, The first time is when the paralytic is let down. And in Matthew's account, the paralytic is let down by four of his friends, remember? They remove the tiles of the roof and let him down. And Jesus says, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. The next time is when a woman who has a 12-year issue of blood, Jesus says to her, take courage. Your faith has healed you. The other time is when his uh, apostles, his disciples are on the sea and a storm comes and they're terrified. They think their lives are over. And Jesus says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. So Jesus is with them in, in that event and strengthens them and encourages them. And then the fourth instance, a very famous one, is when Jesus is in the upper room the night before he was uh, crucified. And Jesus says in the upper room, take heart, take courage, same word, take courage, I have overcome the world. Now Paul is in the lowest moment of his life. And maybe right now some of you feel like, I'm in one of the lowest moments of my life. Can you hear those words? Take courage. Your mission is not over. I'm not through with you. I'm not through using you. Yes, you shouldn't have said that, (laughs) that you're a whitewashed wall to the high priest, but you apologize for it. Your conscience now has been restored and cleansed. Come on now, let's go. I'm going to take you where I want to take you. I'm in charge of your life and I'm not through with you. Take courage, he says. You're going to be in Rome. Now, sometimes we ask ourselves, uh, and, and I want to close with this. You can see here that Paul's message about a resurrected Jesus just consistently gets him into tremendous squabbles, tremendous chaos, mob scenes, people wanting to kill him. Wouldn't the man finally wise up and just take a golfing vacation, you know, to the beach somewhere and just get away from this for a while? But you, So you have to ask yourself, why do these Christians just keep getting themselves into trouble, keep stirring up dissension, keep creating division? Well, it's not as though we like chaos or division or disturbances. We don't. We hate it. But here's the reason. Because God tells us to. And here Jesus Christ doesn't say, take courage, I'm going to get you out of this and give you a retreat. No, he says, take courage, I'm going to keep you on the mission. And Jesus is the one who put him on the mission in the first place. Jesus is the one who keeps commanding him to stay on mission no matter what happens to you. And he doesn't say, take consolation. He says, take courage. He doesn't say, take a break. Take heart. Take courage. You are engaged in this mission everywhere that you're engaged in it for one reason. The Lord has commissioned you. So take the heart that he gives. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands by every one of us this morning and says again to us, take heart. I'm taking you where I want to take you. I'm using you how I want to use you. And you just keep following me and my word every step of the way. And my spirit will abide with you. That's the reason that when he gave us the great commission, what did he say? And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. I'm standing with you always. And this clamoring and this chaos and this hostility and opposition, no matter how subtle or how blatant, is not against you. It's against me. I am with you. And so I will bring the chaos because I'm with you. And I will help you handle it because I'm with you. Now, if he's telling us that, guys, let me tell you something. I am willing, and I'll I'll be willing to do this and say so right now. I'm willing to take on any two of you on the golf course. $10,000 
for the lowest score playing low ball. Uh, my partner is Bubba Watson. <laughs> I don't care how I play. It really doesn't matter. My partner is Bubba Watson. And I can, he plays Bubba golf, and that's better than any golf you can play. And so uh, that's finally any two of you that want to play Bubba and me, $10,000, I'm on for it. Uh, I'm willing to take any two of you on the basketball court, any two of you. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how high you can leap and how well you can shoot. Rudy Gay and I will take you on $10,000, first one to 20. Any two of you. And I'll take anybody in this world on in the gospel, anybody, because it's Jesus and me. It has no, nothing to do with my preaching or my courage or anything else. I just got the right teammate. Now, gentlemen, you got the right teammate. You can take anybody on because it's you and Jesus against the entire world. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, your great promises to us. And even as we look back, some of us who have been around for a while and we've seen the amazing messes we've gotten into, we can laugh at them now because you got them through us, got, got us through them. And we would ask you for the grace to laugh about the future messes and the present messes because you're with us and you're going to get us through them. We pray that you'll help us to maintain what we're supposed to maintain, a good and clean conscience, being honest and confessional and not seeking to exalt ourselves but only your precious name. And help us to use our lives and our lips in those ways that we should in order to advance your kingdom, not because we can advance it, but because you've been pleased to advance it yourself through us, unworthy though we be. And we commit ourselves again to the proclamation of the faith and the defense of the faith wherever we go and whatever we do. We commit ourselves to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.